Amen. That was beautiful. Thank you to our worship committee for welcoming in new people and young people and all of that. We appreciate that very much. All glory be to Christ. Well, we're back in the book of Acts today. Into chapter five. One of the beliefs that is, I have to say, prominent in broader Christianity, even the evangelical world of Christianity today, is that all the gifts of the Holy Spirit that were operational in the first century that we read about in our New Testaments are and must be operational today, including such gifts as prophecy, healings, miracles, languages, everything. Otherwise, they believe, if we don't believe that, we put God in a box. We contain him in a way he was not meant to be contained. We end up denying the power of God if we don't hold to that. Many in the broader charismatic and Pentecostal and third wave wave movements believe that since this is the age of the Spirit, we should expect the same supernatural events we read about in the book of Acts to be happening now. In their minds, and as they approach the Christian faith, since Jesus said we can move mountains by faith, who is anybody today to say otherwise? Much of my early Christianity was spent uh, in both charismatic fellowships and in Pentecostal churches. I am very aware of their approach to the Christian faith, some who are way outside, I think, the boundaries of the Christian faith, and others who are deeply devoted to Jesus Christ, just as you and I are. So I want to say at the outset of this, uh, it's probably going to end up being a two-part message, (laughs) that I love my relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. I treasure it. I ask God all the time for big things in my life, and I wait expectantly for them. Sometimes my faith is powerful and strong, and other times it's weak and it's lagging. I have seen the Lord graciously answer big requests. My father, years ago, was told he had two weeks to live. The pastor was to get ready for the funeral. Mom was to get the burial ground ready. I was still a young man. I said, Lord, I'm not ready for him to die Yet, I prayed. He lived three and a half more years. He outlived the pastor that was to bury him. God does big things still. God answers prayer. I believe in the power of God. I think that our church still believes in the power of God. But I also believe it's important to be faithful to the words of the Holy Spirit that he wrote through men in Scripture and form our beliefs about what his work is from his words in the Bible. It's not enough to have zeal for the Holy Spirit. We must also have the knowledge of God's will. A truly spiritual man is subject to the true voice of the Holy Spirit. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 21 says, No prophecy was produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along or moved by the Holy Spirit. 
I think this is particularly important in relation to the most important spiritual gift that is listed in the New Testament. Do you know what that is? What is the most important spiritual gift of all the 21 or 22, depending on how you count them, spiritual gifts that are in the Bible? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 28 leaves no doubt. It states, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Whatever teachers you have in this church, they are a distant third behind apostles first and prophets second. The highest and the greatest gift with the most authority were the apostles of Jesus Christ. So what we believe about apostles shapes our understanding of all of the other gifts of the Holy Spirit, indeed, all of what the Holy Spirit is doing in our century as well as the first century. It sets our expectation about this present age. What should the church expect to be going on these days? A number today carry the title apostle. Did you know that? Have you ever bumped into an apostle? They speak uh, about sending out apostles from their church. They talk, in some cases, of having untouchable apostolic authority. Don't you dare contradict one of them. Are these men and women really apostles of Jesus, or is this a misunderstanding? There is such a thing as a false apostle, you know. Referring to some men in his own day, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, "...for such men are false apostles." deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So obviously, if there's such deception that's going on, churches who love Jesus are to put to test the claims of anyone who says they're an apostle. And if they fail the scriptural test, we are to reject them, not accept them. This is what the Holy Spirit wants us to do. Jesus actually commended a church for doing that very thing. The church in Ephesus, near the end of the first century, in Revelation chapter 2 and 2, Jesus, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus said, I know your deeds, speaking to this church, and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And then he goes on with other commendations and some corrections. That was the first century. What about now? Many believers who have zeal, as I said, for the Christian faith, haven't approached the Scriptures to gain enough knowledge. In 2 Peter chapter 1, it talks about our faith, and it says, to your faith, add, and the next thing it says is moral excellence. If you really believe in Jesus Christ, let's see that in the way morally that you live, you see? And then it says, to your moral excellence, add, do you know, knowledge, knowledge of God's will. Faith which is zealous but is misguided can do more harm in the church than it does good. Misunderstanding concerning the Christian faith leads to misunderstanding the work of the Holy Spirit and misguided zeal, and that hurts. Fortunately, on this gift of the Spirit. Now, when you study the gifts of the Spirit, you realize that on some of them, it doesn't say too much about them in the Bible. It really doesn't. And you wonder, well, what was that gift of the Spirit? And you have basically a name, and that's about it. But when it comes to the first gift, the primary gift, the most important gift, the one from which the other gifts flow, 
The gift of apostleship, we're fortunate that the Bible has an enormous amount to say about it in our New Testament. And so our text today uh, is Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. I pray that as we study this text, it will clarify your faith in Jesus Christ and what the church is supposed to be doing. It's a great text, not because it tells us everything about apostles, it does not, but because it shows the apostles in action in their ministry, and then because of that, it becomes a nice launching pad for us to go to other texts of Scripture and do a wider study of apostleship. We begin by reading the text, Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Whenever you read the scripture, you know it's always important to know the context and the flow of thought, what's been going on before this and what's been going on afterwards. We know in these early chapters, we've already seen the arrival of the Holy Spirit and the the baptism of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2. We saw the life of the community where the community was dedicating themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were dedicating themselves to the people, the fellowship that was there. That involved the daily prayers in the temple. That involved their, their witnessing. They're taking the Lord's Supper together. They're worshiping and a lot of giving to one another, helping those that were poor. The miracles that the apostles were doing were all part of the mix. And one of those miracles in Acts chapter 3 was brought to the fore by the author Luke, and that was the healing of the lame man. Why that miracle? Because that miracle was the one that led to the beginning of the persecution of the church. First Peter and John were arrested temporarily. They were brought before the Sanhedrin, and you remember that, and they were sternly warned not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus, and they said, that's not a command we can obey. We have to speak about the things we've heard and we've seen. And then we go into Acts chapter 4, and the church continues to grow, and it, 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 the, the Word of God continues to spread. We go into chapter 5, and we see the apostles kind of in their ministry inside of the church, what was going on inside of the church. And we see them having a leadership role, particularly Peter, and he's leading the congregation, in this case, exposing sin within the church, Ananias and Sapphira in the passage previous to this in verses 1 through 11. Their sin of hypocrisy and and lying to the Holy Spirit was exposed and God decided to make an example of them and they were struck dead. When we come here to this little paragraph, we're seeing the 12 apostles in action, but their ministry, not so much to the church is being accentuated as to the broader community, the unbelieving Jewish community. That's right. The apostles had a very important ministry outside of the church as well, and that was to bear testimony to the things they had heard and seen about Jesus Christ. When we say that we go out witnessing and we go out testifying, we mean that in a derived or in a secondary sense. You and I didn't see Jesus on the cross. You and I didn't see Jesus risen from the dead. They did. They were literally the eye and ear witnesses of Jesus Christ chosen by him. And I love this passage because I think it helps to see that as the church grows, it is built on a foundational work and an essential work 
by these blessed men, these apostles. And as we read here and we go to other sections of Scripture, we're going to find that there are are basically three reasons why the apostles were foundational to the entire church, the universal church. Basically three reasons they were foundational. I don't know how many we're going to get through today, maybe just one. But the first reason is that they were uniquely chosen by Jesus at the beginning. They were uniquely chosen by Christ at the very beginning. The second reason is that they were uniquely attested by miracles. They were uniquely attested by miracles. And the third was that they had a unique foundational authority that was granted to them directly from Christ. They had a unique foundational authority from Christ. So let's get into that first reason. As you try to understand your faith, the Christian faith, the Bible, what do we expect today? And you think about these apostles, the gift of apostleship, is it around today or was it foundational? By the way, if it's not around today, then it's very possible that other gifts are not around. So this is a very important study for you to understand what's going on in the broader Christian movement and, and, and do churches like ours, are we on target with this? And I think it's an important study. So this first reason is that they were uniquely chosen. The apostles were uniquely chosen by Jesus Christ right at the beginning. And to understand this, we're going to need to gather some background about these apostles before we can dive into this immediate text. Just the name apostle when you read that, or apostles when we read that in Acts 5, alerts the reader, who are these guys? Where did they come from? And you're to look backward in Acts, and actually Luke wrote two parts. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then the second Part of his work is the book of Acts. So Luke and Acts go together. So we need to read back even into the gospel of Luke and then the other synoptics, Mark and Matthew, to understand where did these apostles come from? Who are they? Well, the four gospel accounts indicate the choice of the apostles. And some of them indicate that toward the beginning of Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry, Jesus decided to spend one entire night in prayer. When's the last time you spent an entire night in prayer? He prayed the whole night, and the next morning, still awake, he walked among his broader group of disciples. They were his followers, listening to his teachings, and he placed his hands on only 12 of them. There are probably hundreds of them there, and he laid his hands on 12 of them. And he appointed these, and only these, 12 disciples, and it says he appointed them to be with him. He also called these 12, not just disciples, but what? Apostles. For example, Mark chapter 3 and verse 14. It says, Jesus appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. Send them out to preach. Immediately you can see that whatever an apostle is, it means they needed to be physically with Jesus and then they needed to be chosen by Jesus and then sent out by Jesus. That's definitional to what it means to be an apostle. If we go to uh, Luke's gospel, chapter 6, verse 13, it says, when day came, again, he'd been praying all night, Jesus called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Jesus Christ hand-selected his own apostles while he was on earth. That term, apostolos, we get our word apostle from it, apostolos in Greek simply means a person who is sent out on behalf of another person. Today we use terms like ambassador or delegate or envoy or representative and they carry a similar meaning. 
a person in authority sends out somebody else who's lesser in authority than them to speak on his behalf. That's the idea. The person who is sent out is the apostle. Jesus taught in John 13, 16, an apostle is not greater than the one who sent him. That's correct. The one who sent him is the greater one. Someone can't be an apostle then without being commissioned. Someone can't be an apostle without being sent directly by a higher authority. That already should get your mind working a little bit, right? Now, I should add that the the title apostle was not originally a technical term. We talk about the apostles of Jesus Christ, and we have a very precise and specific kind of technical understanding of that. But it originally was not a technical title. In Roman society, it was used in a variety of circumstances by anybody in authority. It was not just used by religious people, certainly not just by the Christians. They did not coin this term. But it could also be used in the greater Christian movement in the churches in a non-technical way. When a church sent somebody out, then that was a sent person. That was an apostle. So they would send someone out to represent them in some way. We even have something like that today. In certain denominations, they'll send a delegate out to go to some kind of national convention, and they'll cast the vote for that church. And so they're a delegate. And so you might, in the, in the more broad sense, think of them as the, a sent one or as an apostle. Even a missionary might be sent out by a local church to go plant a church, and you might say, well, we sent him, so he's our sent one, so he is our apostle. Whose apostle you are then depends on what? Who sent you, right? Whoever sent you, you're their apostle. What we're talking about when we talk about the gift of apostleship here in the church are the apostles of Jesus Christ, the ones that Jesus specifically commissioned, the ones that Jesus sent into the world to represent him to the world. Did you know that Jesus never wrote any of the 27 documents in the New Testament? Did you know he didn't write any of that? Do you know that he commissioned these men to carry the message into the world? 73 of the 79 times that the Greek term apostolos occurs in the New Testament, it refers to the technical office or the gift of apostle of Jesus Christ. 73 of the 79 times. Now, who were these men Actually, who were they? Well, the primary requirement, as we said, of an apostle of Jesus Christ was to be hand-selected by Jesus. It did not matter that someone wanted to be an apostle. You know, choose me. I want to be an apostle. It didn't matter. He had to be chosen directly and physically by the historical Jesus in order to be the historical Jesus' representative to the rest of the world. Do you know that Jesus even chose Judas Iscariot not to be a witness? He knew what was going on with, that, with him. He was chosen to fulfill scripture that he was going to be betrayed. Listen to John chapter 6 and verse 70. Jesus answered them, this is a group of disciples, did I myself not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He knew. He knew. Yes, Judas was chosen by Jesus, but chosen to fulfill his evil role. And that is why the 11 disciples, after Judas defected, made such a big deal in the foundational chapter of this second work of Luke, Acts chapter 1, about how were they going to replace Judas' office? Jesus had ascended into heaven. How were they going to replace him? And, and they, they made the choice of Matthias, but they didn't think they were making the choice. It says in Acts chapter 1, 
and verse 24 that they prayed and they wanted Jesus to be the one that would directly choose that 12th man, that 12th apostle. It says this in verse 24 of chapter 1. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place, referring to his suicide. They didn't want to make the choice. They wanted Jesus to hand-select a replacement who met all the requirements. They already knew Jesus said they have to have these requirements. They knew that. There were only two men that met the requirements, but they didn't want to even choose of the two. They wanted Jesus to hand-select which one it would be, which one would have the gift of apostleship and fill that 12th spot. Now, I know if your mind is tracking with all of this, then immediately you're thinking, but what about Paul? What about Paul? Paul did not accompany Jesus in his earthly ministry. No, he did not. And that is why Paul was not chosen by Jesus to be one of the 12. Paul was an apostle, but he was not one of the 12 apostles. You ask, how does that work? Because Paul, whose name, remember, was Saul was also hand-selected by Jesus Christ. That is what Acts chapter 9 is about, which we're going to get to one day. The road to Damascus. Why is that such a big deal? Not just because of a great story of Christian conversion. It goes way beyond that. Jesus actually came down and appeared to Saul. The other people could hear a noise, but they couldn't see what he was seeing. And Jesus came to him and appeared to him in a vision and directly, one-on-one, chose Paul to be his apostle. Acts 9, actually, is only a summary of the words that Jesus said to Paul on that occasion. We get the longer and more detailed version uh, when Paul testified to King Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. He's recounting that day, and uh, in verses 15 through 18, Paul said this to the king, "'And I said, "'Who are you, Lord?' "'And the Lord said, "'I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. "'But get up and stand on your feet.'" For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. There it is. I, Jesus, said to you, Paul, get up. Stand on your feet. I'm appointing you, and I am now sending you. Direct appointment of a man and direct commissioning and sending of him, not to the Jews, but to who? The Gentiles. Paul knew that. He knew his ministry. He wrote in Romans eleven thirteen, I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. He knew where he was sent. That didn't mean that he could never speak to Jews. He did. But his primary apostleship was appointed to go to the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verses 7 through 9, Paul had to defend his apostleship more than others because it seemed like a a different kind of apostleship. And so churches had some questions about it. We don't today, but back then they did. And he had to defend that. And he defended that in the Corinthian writings and in other places. You'll notice he begins his, all of his letters by saying, Paul and what? 
apostle, right? Make sure everybody knew. He was not bragging about himself, but there was no way he was going to diminish the office that Jesus Christ had given to him. And so he defended that. Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, 7 and 9, it says, then Jesus appeared to James. Paul is recounting the resurrection appearances. Then Jesus appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. And then he writes this in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 15. And last of all, please get that, last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles, and I am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul says, unlike others who were following Jesus Christ and building his church at the beginning, I wasn't doing that. I was attacking the church, putting them in prison and trying to stamp it out. And I do not, I, I, I do not deserve to even be called an apostle. And then he goes on and says, nevertheless, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace did not prove vain. And I labored even more than the other apostles. And you can see just his, his laborious and, and incredible work of toil uh, in the New Testament to plant churches. Paul says in the same passage, I saw Jesus Christ risen from the dead also. I am the last one to see Jesus Christ risen from the dead. I'm last of all of them. Of all of the appearances, mine was last of all to see him. Last of all in a chronological list, it's very clear what he meant. He appeared here, he appeared here, he appeared here, 500 brethren at one time, then these guys, and last of all of the appearances, he chose to appear to me. Paul's sight of Jesus Christ came chronologically after all the other apostles and all the other appearances of Jesus after the 40 days in which Jesus was on earth after his resurrection, making appearances to the 12 and others that were around the 12. That is why Paul described his apostleship as untimely born. That is the Greek verb ektroma. Actually, that originally meant a miscarriage. The linguistic and exegetical key to the Greek New Testament helps us to understand this term. I'll quote from them. It is a fetus born before its time, a child born abnormally before the full term, even miscarriage. The term points to the results of the birth and was used to indicate that which is incapable of sustaining life on its own volition but requires divine intervention if it is to continue. It emphasizes Paul's weakness and his dependence on God's grace. It goes on. It could refer to the abnormal and sudden character of Paul's birth to the Christian faith and the apostolic ministry, end quote. Listen, his apostleship was abnormal. It came after Jesus' ascension. It's not a norm. It's weird. But, and here's the key, No one else's apostleship was ever like that because Paul wrote, last of all, he appeared to me. I am the last one to see Jesus Christ alive from the dead. And since you had to see the resurrected Christ to be his witness and to be an apostle, after Paul, there can be no more apostles. It is true that John, 
the apostle John, in the Revelation, saw Jesus after Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul himself also, Jesus even said it, in that appearance would continue to see Jesus in subsequent visions after that initial vision. But these were men who had already seen Christ once. No new witness to Jesus' resurrection came after Acts chapter 9. And Paul, he was the last of all the apostles chosen by Jesus Christ. This fact alone, if you read your Bible carefully, makes it clear that nobody today has seen the resurrection of Jesus. And if someone claimed it, and I know they did, just don't believe that. That doesn't mean that they haven't had a very incredible dream of some kind, but that's, that's not what it means to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Since that is true, nobody can be an apostle of Jesus Christ in the church today. Nor last century, nor the century before, nor the century before that. What am I up to? 1600s, whatever, 1500s, just keep going. So there's a huge problem with someone claiming 2,000 years into church history. We have apostles in our church. What sense do you mean that? Because Jesus had to hand select them way back yonder. You got someone 2,000 years old in your church? We don't. Indeed, the church since the second century, if you don't know when the second century is, that's right after the first century. There's first century, then there's second century. The church since the second century always believed that the apostles were in the first century just because of the foundational nature of that century and their direct connection to the life and ministry and resurrection of Jesus. You may be scratching your head and asking, well, then how can anybody today be so audacious as to claim to be an apostle today? Never underestimate biblical illiteracy in our day and age even in evangelical churches. But there's another reason some people think that they are apostles today or that the gift of apostleship is active today. And this is still background to our text from the Gospels and from Acts. There's another popular teaching that's going around that attempts to make a distinction between the office of an apostle, which they concede belonged to the 12 and to Paul and maybe a few other very early men, a distinction between an office of an apostle and the gift of apostleship. They say people today are not holding the office of apostle. That has ceased, but some may still have the gift of apostleship. A spring 2008 Christianity Today article advanced this view as a middle road between the two more traditional positions. Cessationism is the position that says there are no apostles today in the church and continuous say, yes, there are apostles in the church today. They wanted a middle road, and I'll quote part of the article. Somewhere in the middle are those who affirm the gift's activity today, but in a more generic capacity. The word apostle literally means sent one, a designation that may be applied to many believers But the middle ground viewpoint acknowledges there is a difference between being gifted as an apostle with a little a and possessing the authority of an apostle with a capital A. So they think it's it's right to call these people today apostles if you just don't put a capital A on it. They have the gift of apostleship, 
but they are not in the office of apostle. But wait, if the gift is different than the office, why are they using the same term? And what exactly is this gift of apostleship that is not being an apostle? The article goes on. Initiating new works to bring people to Jesus is apostolic. Notice how they worded it. People with the apostolic gift see over the horizon. They're able to look at the spiritual landscape and see where God is working. They possess, and I'm skipping part of the quotes here, a drive to extend God's kingdom as a spiritual entrepreneur. It goes on. Apostles are eager to establish churches and not merely make converts. The apostolic gift leaves churches in its wake, end quote. That's an interesting twist. So church planters and visionaries exercise the gift of apostleship today, they claim, even if they're not an apostle of Jesus Christ. I guess that would make me an apostle. (laughs) No worries, I, I do not make that claim. The first thing to say about this middle way view is that it has already admitted that there's something the Holy Spirit did in the first century that's not going on in the church today. They've already conceded the office of apostle given by the Holy Spirit ceased. And that's quite an admission. Because if you allow one thing to cease, you can no longer say that a second thing can't cease. Do you follow that? If one thing has ceased, then the general rule that that nothing can cease in the entire history of the church is wrong. It's It's a false assumption. It does mean that all things do not continue on just as they did. The second thing to note about that position is that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, one of the great chapters in the Bible that talks about spiritual gifts and defines them and gives a list of some of them, Paul makes it quite clear that the spiritual gift of apostleship and the office are exactly the same thing. The apostles, the office of the apostle is listed right along with all the other spiritual gifts. It's worded as a gift and then it's worded as an apostle and the other ones are worded simultaneously with them and the only conclusion you can come to is when he talks about the office, that's another way of talking about the gift. The one who had the gift fills the office. It means the same thing. So the Bible does not make that distinction. That's a wrong reading of the text that they've taken to try to get apostleship active in the church today. It's a false dichotomy. Furthermore, if you go earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul describes the spiritual gifts in a number of ways. It doesn't just talk about them as gifts. It talks about them as manifestations, and it talks about them as ministries. In other words, the gift, possessing the gift, leads to the tangible result of the ministry, i.e. the office, the display of that ministry. You have the gift and use it, and now you're in that ministry. You have that ministry of encouragement, or you have that ministry of whatever. Using the gift of apostleship given by the Holy Spirit means you are an apostle. Don't get carried away with the word office. It doesn't mean that you have a room and there's something hung up over your, you know, your door. It just means you're exercising that gift. You're, you're out there in front being recognized as a person who has that gift. The parallel would be the gift of prophecy. When, when did someone become a prophet? When someone walked up to him and said, you know, we're now going to confer on you the office of apostleship, I mean, office of, of prophet. no. As soon as someone broke out in prophecy, guess what? They were a what? They were a prophet, right? 
If someone, if someone prophesied, the person prophesying was the prophet or prophetess. Paul never called men like Timothy, Titus, Luke, and Silas who shared in his visionary work and shared in his church planting work in a very intimate and profound way. He never called them apostles and never said they had the gift of apostleship. The scriptures never speak of someone having the gift of apostleship and not the office of apostle. Indeed, true apostles of Jesus Christ were rare, even in the early church. Apart from the twelve and Paul, cases can be made for very few other men. Possibly James, the Lord's brother, who had a resurrection appearance specifically to him and seemed to carry authority in the church in Jerusalem and wrote part of the New Testament and from which Jude derives his authority to write his letter. Some have said maybe Barnabas. It's hard to tell whether Barnabas is being spoken of in the non-technical way as a delegate of the church or whether he had actual apostleship. That's not clear. I'm belaboring the point here because it is astonishing when you get into the literature that it's out there, the claims that are made, did you know there were a number of women apostles in the New Testament? I didn't. I had to go back and say, where are all these women apostles in the New Testament? I've been reading it a long time. I haven't found one yet. Yes, there are, we're told. Sure, some claim. Romans chapter 16 and verse 7 says this, greet Andronicus and Junius my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who also were in Christ before me, before Paul. Junius is a feminine noun. But anyone can tell that this verse does not say that either of these two were apostles, male or female, only that they were outstanding among the apostles. That term, outstanding, is a translation from episemos, which does not mean that they were superlative apostles or fabulous apostles, but that they were well known by the apostles. In fact, if you have the ESV, it translates it clearly that way. It says, they are well known to the apostles. That same Greek term is used in Matthew 27, 16 about Barabbas. It says at that time they were holding a notorious, same word, prisoner called Barabbas. Notorious, well-known. Why were they well-known? Because Andronicus and Junius were saved very early on, and they were, they, they were in that church in Jerusalem, and they were personally known to the apostles, and that's what it means. It's funny how we never hear about these very high and fabulous apostles anywhere else in the New Testament if they were so great. I mean, if they were just normal-like apostles, Bartholomew and Philip, we might say, well, we don't hear too much about them either. But these were outstanding apostles, like Peter, like Paul, but we never hear of them anywhere. And it's funny that they're sandwiched in a long list of names in Romans 16, receiving no special honor at all from Paul. Please don't be fooled by this kind of sloppy Bible study that's out there. If you love the Holy Spirit and you love Jesus Christ, don't you want to be careful with his words and derive your understanding of what the Holy Spirit is doing by what he says? That is not to put God in a box. In fact, it is, is basically to be listening carefully to what the Holy Spirit is doing and allow him to do what he's doing and not tell him what he must be doing when he said he's no longer doing it. Putting a straight jacket on the Holy Spirit, I think, would be that way. 
But there's more. There's more reason we don't have apostles today. We'll just get started with this. And that's our second reason. Apostles were uniquely attested by miracles. Look at verse 12 in your text now. And then we're going to leapfrog verse 13 and go to verses 14 through 16. It says, at the hands of, notice what it says, it's very specific, at the hands of the who? Apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. Then you jump, it says in verse 14, and all the more believers on the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent, verse 15, that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that, now here's an amazing thing, when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were, some of them, being healed. Is that what it says? They were all being healed. You know how these faith healers today, they heal some, so they claim, but you can't see how they healed them because it was in their head or something like that, and then others, they didn't heal, but that's not the fault of the healer, right? That's the fault of the person who didn't have enough faith. Peter didn't do that. He didn't say, well, here's, you know, here's the people that got healed because they had enough faith, and here are the people, sorry, that did not get healed <laughs> because they did not have enough faith. It was all on him. It wasn't about their faith. It was about his power. I always said that Jesus Christ was not a faith healer. He never healed anybody by faith. He healed them by the power of God. Peter was not a faith healer. Peter healed people by the power of God. There's a very important distinction there. Well, here we are afforded a wonderful glimpse, and it's just a glimpse of the apostles in action, not just Peter. Peter's brought out to the fore because he was the most prominent apostle, the leader of the 12. But that doesn't mean that the other apostles were not uh, doing miracles. They were. We even see at the hands of the apostles, plural, many signs and wonders were taking place. So they're unified, they're they're a group, they're a unit, just as Jesus wanted them. They're getting along, they're leading the church together, they're unified, they're with one accord, and then that unity is expressed by them being together. Notice that they are told that they're in the temple together, in the portico of Solomon. That place was mentioned back in chapter 3 and verse 11. That reveals that this was an open and public ministry. All the Jews could go up to the temple mount and see what what they were doing and hear what they were saying. This was a public ministry by the apostles. In fact, unlike in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, the point of this passage is to show that what the apostles did was important not just to the people inside the church, but to the outsiders. Many of these Jews were having a hard time accepting the fact that a man crucified could be their king and Messiah. It took some of them a long time. We, We saw a huge number of them converted on the day of Pentecost. Then we saw another huge number of them converted after the healing of the layman. Now we read about huge numbers still coming to Christ. Who were those guys? They were the ones that were scratching their head and kind of looking at this whole thing and saying, I'm not going to be too quick to believe in this Jesus of Nazareth. I need a little more evidence. I need to watch this thing a little longer. And the apostles understood that and they were patient with them and they continued to demonstrate proof after proof after proof until finally they, they said, look at these miracles. They just must be, this must be true. And so they believed. That bold witness of the 12 apostles extended to all corners of Jerusalem. Later, the the high priest is tearing his hair out saying, you have filled all of Jerusalem with your teaching. And he was mad and jealous. And notice the apostles were constantly buttressed by a, a, a fresh supply of signs and wonders. That phrase refers to miracles. 
One after another, they're happening. Undeniable miracles. No one was denying their miracles. Nobody could deny these miracles. They were not things done in a corner. They were not tricks. They were things that the Jews expected to see. They believed in the supernatural, and they saw that. God granted a boatload of miracles to the apostles, not so much for the believers inside the church, but for those who are outside the church. And please notice, and this is very important, it was not your average Joe Christian that was doing these miracles. It's very specific to say the apostles were doing it. That's why we point out we do not believe in a miracle-working early church. We believe in a miracle-working early apostleship. It's the apostles who did the miracles, not the early church. Later, we're going to see that the apostles put their hands on some of their delegates and they lay their hands directly on them. And then as soon as they do that, they've empowered them and they do some miracles as well, but only in their relationship directly connected to the apostles. And these miracles are described with two words, signs and wonders. A sign is exactly that. It's something that points somewhere. A miracle would happen when you see a miracle. If you were standing there and saw the miracle, you'd have two reactions. One is you would would look at the miracle and you'd be astonished. That's where the word wonder comes. Your jaw would drop open. Your eyes would bug out. You know, your mind would be boggled and you're astonished. And that's why it's called a wonder. Who can do that? Who can explain that? But then immediately your eyes would go and your ears would go to the person who performed the miracle. And now you'd be riveted on what they have to say. It's like the miracle said, listen to these men. They know what they're talking about. They speak for God. There should be no doubt about it. You don't need to be a theologian. Just notice the miracle. Notice that's not the kind of thing that happens. Notice that other people pray for that, and sometimes, sometimes, rarely you see a miracle like that, but these are miracles, boom, 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 that are happening because of touch. No, not even because of touch. The man's shadow just passed on them, and they got healed. I like to say that if someone claims to have the gift of healing, let's go down to the local hospital and just have them walk by and let their shadow fall on them and let's see what they can do. Let's empty out the hospital. Let's put all the doctors and nurses out of business. These miracles were so startling. They were like neon signs pointing to not everybody in the church, not the majority of people in the church, but to the testimony the apostles were making. It was the apostles preaching. It was the apostles testifying. It was the apostles giving an I and E witness. It was the apostles that Jesus chose to be with him so they could see it all, touch it all, remember it all, and then speak about what they had seen. In other words, the miracles backed up the apostolic witness, and that's what Jesus promised them they would have. The miracles were done by the apostles so everyone would listen to the apostles so they would learn of the testimony of the apostles so they would believe in Jesus Christ and his resurrection and everything historical that he did. And we'll have to end there, but notice according to verse 14, because of the cleansing of the church in verses one through 11 and because of the incredible miracles, there was incredible, explosive, numerical growth that happened to the church. We'll pick up with this next time. But they were already a church into the thousands. They were already a church that we would say today is a mega church. But now they can't even keep track of the numbers anymore. There's tens of thousands that are in this church. And it just takes off. And this is a golden time in church history. And it's fabulous what's happening here. And we want to pick up with this and understand this and the apostolic testimony 
and their apostolic foundational authority next time, next Lord's Sunday when we meet together. Father, thank you for just getting a glimpse at this text and getting a little bit of a picture of what was going on in those early days. Thank you for the power that attended the apostles. Thank you for their unique role. We pray that everyone would understand that though power still remains in the church, that we are 20 centuries into church and uh, church history, and uh, what you're doing now is not reestablishing a testimony and reestablishing foundational things, but we are working and basing our work uh, off of that foundation, and we're extending and building off of a solid foundation. You would help us as believers and good apologists of the Christian faith to understand the historical aspects of the Christian faith better, and based upon that, have a continued bold and um, powerful and loving testimony to the truth about Jesus Christ, uh, risen from the dead and um, glorified in heaven. Thank you, Father, also for the extension of our worship service now as we receive our new members. We uh, praise you for all that you're doing in our church. In Jesus' name, amen.